Yes, hello, welcome back to Mango Masala, Pi Radio's South Asian show, the hottest new Desi youth-oriented collective, bringing you the latest tunes and chai, Saturdays 3 till 5. Can I get an air horn? I said, can I get an an air horn? Thank you. Obviously started there with Gangana by Dr. Zeus. Massive throwback. If you don't know, get to know. Absolute tune. It's making me miss wedding season. See, I don't actually know because I haven't actually been to that many South Asian weddings. Oh, swear. Like the ones I have been to, obviously, it goes off. But anyway... If you don't know that voice, I'm joined here today by the lovely Halima. Hey guys. Back again. Um, and yeah, how are you doing? All right. Um, very tired. Um, hitting like that, um, the lockdown, like fatigue at this point now. Mm. Like I'm just very fed up of everything. Yeah. And a lot of people don't necessarily understand that because they think, oh, lockdown, you're not doing anything. Why are you tired? But it's actually... If you think about it, like, yes, you're not having to do anything, but almost the daily routine of doing the same thing yeah. over and over again, it it's does. Exa- that in itself is exhausting. Mm. Like, it's just, you, there's just, and also it's not just like you, the daily routine. It's just the fact that like, I know I'm going to be really pessimistic and negative now, but <laughs> because there's really no end in sight, you know? Yeah. Welcome to Mango Masala, people. (laughs) (laughs) Not to get all existential on you guys, but... Yeah, I know what you mean, but got to stay positive, and that's why we're here, hopefully, bring a bit of light to your day. Um, It's a bit dull outside today, isn't it? So It is Manchester, to be fair, like... You know, like, funnily enough, in my old phone, um, like, where I went to uni, it was mostly just Southerners. And in, on my old phone, I had a photo album called Grey Skies because the amount of times I would step out my gaff and the sky would be like, obviously, Manchester has a reputation of being a grey city, but it's not figurative. It's very, very literal. Mm. Like, there'll just be bare times I'll step out and the sky is literally grey. Yeah, it's always like, it's either raining or it's about to rain. Yeah, basically. literally. Yeah. Proper, like, what's it called? Twilight vibes. You know, like, how that's, like, Twilight could have been set in Manchester. It really could have just grey and morbid. (laughs) If anyone out there is listening and wants to do a reboot of Twilight, I would fully support (laughs) doing that. (laughs) Filming it in Manchester. Oh dear. Right, so we're going to start off with a bit of news. And the first item today is relating to actual South Asians in the UK. And this is in relation to a BBC article, which I think went out yesterday. And the title of it was basically, South Asians are not taking the COVID vaccine because of WhatsApp fake news. Now, just to go over what the actual article um, covered, it's this um, Dr. Sood um, is claiming that fake news is likely to be causing some people from the South Asian community in the UK or the South Asian communities to reject um, the COVID vaccine. Um, admin staff are saying that when they call a lot of South Asian patients, they decline and refuse to have the vaccination. Um, doctors have had friends calling them to try and convince their relatives to have the vaccination because other relatives have tried to convince them not to. Um, and they are trying to deal with this and they're saying there's so much fake news out there. Most of it basically being that the vaccine contains animal produce, which it doesn't because obviously eating pork goes against Islam and eating beef goes against Hinduism. So that's the main concern there. But I don't know. Um, 
what are your thoughts on that news article and fake news and WhatsApp and South Asian communities in general? Um, I think obviously there is kind of like a very sensationalist element to the vaccine anyway. Like it's not something that is endemic to the South Asian community. Like almost pe- pockets of every community that I've seen have had reservations towards the vaccine. So that in itself is not a unusual phenomena. However, <laughs> however, the culture of WhatsApp is quite endemic to South Asia. I think South Asians, and I know I've heard this from like some of my African and Caribbean yeah, friends as well. Like, I was going to say, yeah, I think it's not it's not limited to South Asian communities. It yeah, definitely- but but that that specific WhatsApp, you know, culture. Mm. Uh, I I think a lot of like I don't know in, in UK. I know a lot of like um, ethnic minority kind of people from ethnic minorities. Um, use whatsapp in a way to like um spread some very ridiculous things like mm. when corona first came about the amount of things that i'll be hearing from like family members and people in the community about corona from yeah. everything to do with um the effects of corona to the remedies of corona like people's parents were making them like like very random ridiculous teas and remedies and stuff for them to eat um so that i mean that i think is as i said is quite um like not not just specific to south asian but it's quite specific to kind of like like it's a thing basically you know that whole whatsapp culture yeah and i I remember back in um not just limited to covid like i remember back in um 2019 again talking back to the election somehow always managed to bring it back to the 2019 election Mm. but i remember um what was it there is some angst or antagonism going on with regards to um, Kashmir at that time and some major India Indian organization was basically using WhatsApp mm-hmm. to spread mm-hmm. messages and mm-hmm. encourage Indian mm-hmm. people to not vote for Labour in mm-hmm. the election right. which obviously stirred a lot of controversy yeah. around like the fact that they were doing that and also the fact that I think there was a lot of misinformation in what they were saying as well mm-hmm. so it just goes to show like this whole thing really works like if you're yeah. trying to reach like desi aunties and uncles like <laughs> what's up what's up is your best bet mm. but also like in in terms of south asian communities um and and kind of like mistrust towards the vaccine again i know a lot of it is like hysteria and sensationalism but there is also a kind of like this is me getting a bit serious here there is a sort of kind of uh deeper institutional problem here i don't know if you've ever heard of like miss bb syndrome Miss BBC. Yeah, so no. it's basically it's it's, a, it's it's this phenomena where um, South Asian women are not um, taken seriously, like older South Asian women are not taken seriously by their doctors. So oh, um, because yeah. obviously, like certain beliefs that they have and and what a certain stere- cultural stereotypes towards South Asian older South Asian women, they believe um, like sometimes they can be perceived as being just uh, generally hysterical or. Uh, whatever else so th- there's an actual recorded phenomena where a lot of south asian women will go to the doctors and the doctors will not take their um ailments seriously and you know oftentimes it could end up being you know fatal or um detrimental or whatever and it's something that i've seen in my personal life like me when i was younger obviously i'd have to go to the doctors a lot with my mum because she can't really speak english very well um and we've never my mum has never gotten any medical help without having to fight for it um Mm. very recently in 2020 there was an incident which i won't go into but there was an incident with my sister where like they were being so negligent she could have died um so so in knowing that 
th- this is the way that um specifically the older south asian women are seen um i don't think that the mistrust towards you know the medical industry is completely unfounded mm. you know yeah definitely i definitely get where that's coming from and i don't think that um obviously we are talking about um for the most part south asian communities and what you've just said is extremely valid but i also think it is it extends to other bain communities as well yeah 100 like percent. I, I know firsthand that yeah. um <clears throat> I, was, I was actually just yeah. about to raise that yeah uh, okay <laughs> um a, a close family friend of mine or of my family is um is a old um couple who are from jamaica mm-hmm. and yep. the husband actually died like I think it's like seven years ago and mm-hmm. that was basically due to and obviously my, my parents um for context are doctors and they knew like they were t- basically telling a man not manhandling but basically instructing the hospital basically mm-hmm. what to do yeah and they just weren't playing their part and that definitely contributed towards his eventual demise which mm-hmm. wasn't expected and now sadly i do see um the wife is now not doing great health-wise. She's had a stroke and she's um, bed-bound and not doing very well. Um, um, I obviously send out my best wishes to her as well. Um, but it's sad to see, and my dad has said this, that it's the same sort of negligence, yep. um, the same sort of not taking them seriously. Yep. And I asked him, I said, do you think this is because of COVID or do you think this is because they're black? And he said, honestly, I think it's a bit of both. Mm-hmm, like. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, ob- the NHS literally released a report a few months ago to say that the NHS was institutionally... I don't know if you've seen it, mm. but the wording, I'm going to paraphrase, but it's basically to this effect. It's institutionally racist. We don't have any plans to tackle this right now. Like, yeah. it's, it's, it's literally... it's That is literally how they put it. Yeah. Um, and there are... Obviously, I, I can't remember from the top of my head, but like there are numerous statistics that will tell you. Like, for example, black women are five times more likely to die yeah. during childbirth than their white counterparts. Yeah, that is ridiculous, and it's not—it's not, it's not um, a given. It's completely normative. Um, so again, like these communities who have a distrust towards the NHS um, or the medical industry and doctors and modern medicine, to be honest, in general, their distrust is not completely unfounded. But obviously, obviously, fake news is also not all right. Like that also does yeah. also need to be tackled. Definitely. But that's why. But I think it's interesting to. Oh, sorry, not interesting. It's important to um, understand the kind of basis of their distrust because if you're going to approach them to debunk certain myths, you have to do so with that in mind, so that you can apply like you know due diligence and be sensitive the way that you need to be. Sure. On the. Um going off what you just said about fake news i think we should use this opportunity obviously we're on the radio there might be people listening who are a bit skeptical about the vaccine and mm-hmm. whether they're going to take it mm-hmm. so that's why i am taking this opportunity to debunk some myths that are currently going around about the covid um virus sorry the covid vaccine and i'd like to take this opportunity to um basically what's called discard some medical knowledge so without further ado adieu just to clarify <laughs> I, I am by no means a doctor <laughs> I, i'm not like saying that i You're the same type yeah. of doctor as wouldn't have i yeah <laughs> so funny. but i'm not saying i'm a doctor but at the same time i 
my dad is so oh, you're so doctor by proxy he is he is actually gunani oh. <laughs> for those who don't know this is a bollywood <laughs> film where basically some gangster pretends to be a doctor it's a really good film you guys should watch it yeah. if you haven't but moving on to the actual myths so one of them is um so yeah the main myth is basically that the vaccine is going to alter your dna so I am by no means a scientist. People who know me know I'm definitely more on the creative side, but I'm going to do my best to explain this. Going back to GCSE biology, obviously you remember the cell and it's basically the the jelly-like substance is called the cytoplasm and the the main bit is the nucleus. Now the nucleus is what has the DNA and the cytoplasm has the RNA. So, and basically the vaccine is to do with the RNA. So the f- all the changes are to do with that. So basically, the vaccine isn't altering your DNA because it's n- it's not doing anything to the nucleus. The nucleus is where your DNA is stored. It's not being altered in any way. It's not going to be passed on. So any babies will um, in the future will will need a coronavirus because the, the immunity won't be passed on. So long story short, it doesn't do anything to your DNA. <laughs> <laughs> Right, next myth, or the only myth that I have actually, is to do with the um, long-term effects of the vaccine. Obviously, people are worried about the future and what might happen to them if they take the vaccine, which I suppose isn't completely unfounded because we all don't necessarily want to inject ourselves with an unknown substance, well, unknown to us anyway, and potentially risk the unknown in the future. So firstly, I just want to say like, Obviously, this is quite a sensitive topic, but at the same time, the people that are being offered the vaccine at the moment are obviously older. So with all due respect, um, why are you worried about the long-term effects of the vaccine? <laughs> like, no, like obviously I wish everyone who's listening a long and happy and healthy life, but at the same time, go back to reality Obviously, if you're older, you have less life left, less life to be affected by the vaccine. So even if it is going to have any long-term effects, like, hey, hey, to you break ain't got to worry about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hey, to break a team where you're not necessarily going to be around to see them, um, which is sad. And obviously, I, I hope that you live the longest life possible, but that's it's just facts. Mm. Um, but even if you are younger and are doubting about long-term effects, um, most side effects of vaccines do tend to come about within the first um, few weeks, um, basically, of taking it. So you don't really need to worry about that. The chances of you being adversely affected by a vaccine are more... Sorry, it's 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 less likely to happen to you than you getting struck by lightning. Now, tell me, do you go around every day being scared well, yeah. that you're going to be struck by lightning? No. So on that note you don't really need to worry about that. Um, I don't know if you have any myths that you want to debunk. Or... I think you did a great job, Gunani and BBS. <laughs> Thank you. It's making me want to watch the film now. I'm going to go watch the film. Side note, I, I have a confession to make. I haven't actually seen the film. The reason Carlos, I, man! <laughs> the reason why I know this is because... Um, when I first started going with Mianka, who's my girlfriend, she's Indian as well. And her, Shout out Mianka. Yeah. And then <laughs> they saw some document um, 
relating to i think it was online my dad says dr um gunani mbbs oh and uh, then they and all they started, were, they, singing. They started singing <laughs> <laughs> they found it so funny oh. i just had no idea what they were talking about but i've always seen like clips and stuff online i think i've seen half of it but you should watch it it's a brilliant film honestly it's such a feel good there's two films the 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 second one is um my favorite actually i prefer it to the first they're both just such good feel good films mm. i mean what a ridiculous concept a gangster <laughs> guys in as a doctor yeah bloody brilliant so just to end the bit on covid vaccines just a final point was that even if you were going to be affected in the long term by the vaccine we know that the back we know that the virus has definite or highly likely long-term effects on your heart and lungs sorry alima like, I, I hope that I hope that you aren't like I hope that it hasn't affected you in that way. But we know <laughs> that that it's like it, it can have that effect. So surely you would rather have the vaccine and have the chance m- b- less likely than you being struck by lightning <clears throat> that you're going to be affected by it <laughs> than not taking it and be, being highly likely going to catch the virus and actually have these side effects. Yeah. So on that note we leave that segment um i'm not gonna try and make this a regular thing because by no means am i claiming to be a doctor but if you have any other questions you want <laughs> to ask me feel free to reach out to us on instagram at manga masala radio and with that right i think it's getting a bit overplayed now <laughs> right what's the next point Right, just a final thing on the um, vaccines. Um, the MPs have expressed their concern about minority groups missing out on the vaccines. Mm-hmm. And we also need to consider also the problem that putting out news articles such as that on the BBC, big headline, it was on the front page of BBC, South Asians um, basically are not taking the coronavirus vaccine. And to be fair, um, a study carried out by the Royal Society of Public Health did find that 57% of um, BAME individuals said they would take the vaccine compared to 79% of white people. But first of all, I'd just like to say on that statistic, it's this is where it becomes problematic to kind of group mm, BAME, like mm-hmm, all, all mm-hmm. ethnic minorities into one group, because it's yep. kind of like, why is it white, these, everyone else? Yep. On the same note, be as it may that obviously there appear to be more um, people that wouldn't take the vaccine who are of BAME background rather than those that are white. Putting out headlines like that and putting out news and also just the fact that um, South Asians might not be taking the vaccine, it's fanning the flames of racism in a bit. Like, there are plenty... There's There's already been a lot of accusations about the fact that it's ethnic minorities that aren't taking this virus seriously yeah. because we have been disproportionately affected. And it's not we've not been disproportionately affected because we don't take it seriously. It's because um, we tend to be... Like, for example, I know Bangladeshis are, um, after black Africans, were the second... Um, second demographic that's been the most affected and coincidentally were the two poorest demographics in the country you know so like yeah. it's, it's all institutional it's not because oh you know they don't take it seriously they're not wearing their masks they're not taking precautions yeah. and all of that so definitely it can become it can come across as antagonistic and they need to be very careful about the way that they make statements yeah like it literally makes sense and when we're saying this mm-hmm. 
before anyone jumps to come, we're not saying all <clears> black <throat> people or all Bangladeshi people live in um, lower class households or lower class no, no, areas. No. But at the same time, seeing as a significant proportion of them do, obviously... I mean, like, there's there have been literal, like, government reports to say that the reason... There have been literal government reports to say that it is... Um, ethnic minorities that are disproportionately affected and it is because um for example as i said um certain minority groups that are poorer demographics they tend to have more precarious frontline jobs um they tend to live in intergenerational households their houses tend to be more overcrowded this is not coming from me this is literally coming from government reports like yeah you know and it's like it's it's literally all makes sense because Mm -hmm. the way that viruses spread is through cramped non non ventilated exactly. environments exactly. and obviously if black and bangladeshi people are actually obviously in those environments mm-hmm. more likely than their white age counterparts mm-hmm. then obviously it's going to spread more yeah. and more easily through them. and also you can't really you know in terms of the headline like it's it's a little bit unfair to to make statements and not give context you know like mm. to talk about the fact that oh south asians aren't taking the vaccine but then not talking about why they might have a distrust of yeah. the nhs or medicine or you know yeah apprehensions or whatever else i think as well like i i get that we've got that figure there that 79 percent of white people apparently (laughs) are willing to take the vaccine but at the same time i've seen people from all walks of life like posting stuff on instagram posting oh this that about the vaccine why they don't yeah yeah 100 i mean there's there's a literal movement in america i mean obviously i know it's not they're not british but also like of white americans who are taking taking the fact that they have to wear a mask as an attack on their civil liberties because they just don't believe in this virus. Not even that, there's that. Uh, I'm personally not a fan. Um, what's her name? Julia Hartley something. She posted on her Twitter the other day of like, she basically bought a mask that says on it, um, I'm wearing this against my will because obviously the oh supermarkets are the supermarkets are finally making it compulsory to wear a mask. Like, how are we literally a year into this and yeah, supermarkets are yeah, only just only doing just that? Now, yeah. It's the same as mm-hmm. like the, the fact that Boris has only just closed the travel corridors like a week into a national lockdown. Bro. Surely the idea of a national lockdown is that yeah, that should have yeah, been in honestly, place. Honestly, honestly, uh, anti-vaxxers really think they're facing some kind of like oppression. <laughs> like they really uh, believe they're oppressed. It is honestly. It's it speaks. The, pri- the privilege that they have to think that that is yeah oppression. exactly exactly uh, anyway moving on from covid but still say staying on quite serious and quite sad topics obviously um there's been a bit of news this week relating to um blm and the unjust mm. um killings basically because uh, that's what it is that is what it is the unjust killings of black people the main one being that last week in cardiff um, mahmoud hassan w- died following injuries from police custody in cardiff mm-hmm. if you don't know he was arrested last friday neighbors reported hearing a massive commotion he was taken to the police station f- under the charge of breaching the peace um oh no oh, Wait, he was taken to the police station for that reason, but he was released the next morning without charge. But when he returned home, he was wearing bloodstained clothes, appearing severely bruised, bleeding from the mouth. He told family he'd been tasered twice, kicked in the head, suffered suffered facial injuries and dislocated his knee. They also found bite marks all over his body. Now, he didn't have the injuries when he left his flat. So... 
obviously that implies that it happened when he was in police custody. We don't know that for certain, but it's implied. Um, so he came back from the police station the next morning. Um, his friend came to look after him and he was honestly like he was tired and i get that like i I can imagine why he would be tired from such like an experience and he just wanted to lie down and he was like yeah i'll seek medical attention later um he went to sleep for a few hours his friend came to a few hours later and found him dead basically um the paramedics were then called the first responder came on a bike um, which I know we're in COVID, but that I think when you call the paramedics and you're saying someone's dying, I don't expect the first person to arrive to be on a bike. Like, let's be honest, you expect mm-hmm. there to be mm-hmm. proper services. Mm-hmm. I, like I said, I know we're in COVID, but still, like, come on. Then, obviously, <coughs> um, more paramedics arrived and then pronounced him dead. Um, the fact is then, 10 police cars then arrived at the scene and cordoned off the flat um, and were assessing the scene. Hassan's family were prevented from seeing his body, which was left on the kitchen floor, which was where the CPR had been administered until the next morning. And obviously people are very upset about this. They're wanting to know answers. They're wanting, to know, they're yeah. wanting people to be held accountable. Um, and it's just, it's just, it, 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 it's by no means the first time that something like this has happened, but it doesn't get any less shocking the fact mm-hmm. that this continues to mm-hmm. be a thing. And the important thing is to not let um, Hassan become another statistic. Mm-hmm. He needs. We need to see effective change from this. Like we, it's like you were saying last week, Halima. We always point at the US and sort of be like, "Oh yeah, things are so much worse there because they have guns, this, that, the other." But mm-hmm. the UK isn't innocent. It's happening nope. here as well. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Also, like, just just to kind of, like, contextualise this in in a more institutional level if we're talking about police harassment. Um, So black and ethnic minorities in this, in the UK are um, up to 40 times more likely to be stopped and searched by police. Um, And we know stopped and searched means harassed. Um, Black and ethnic minority prisoners are twice as likely to die whilst in police custody than their white counterparts. Mm -hmm. Um. So again, this is not, as you said, it's not a self-isolated incident as much as obviously we need to make sure that we, we speak specifically of um, <clears throat> Mohammed Hassan and his story and his name. It's not, self, it's not a self-isolated incident. Um, it is very much an institutional problem. Um, and it kind of, it's a little bit ridiculous because we, we've, we had an entire summer of, of yeah. BLM protests and... I mean, obviously, the, the point at which the police are still um, functioning the way that they have always been, this is always just good. Th- this, we can expect this to keep happening. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is why those of you are listening, obviously, I want to say this isn't an attack, but ultimately, this is basically telling you to get your act together. Mm-hmm. Those of you that just posted a black square last summer and then that's it it's not good enough this is still happening this is why you need to make it a priority to keep on top of this demand justice and demand change do whatever you can whether it's donating whether it's um protesting like whether it's writing to your mp whatever it is you need to keep on top of this because ultimately um if you're not black or if you're not a person of color 
I don't want to. I don't want to take away from the fact that obviously it is black people that are disproportionately affected yeah. by this. But at the same time, there's similar problems that are affecting people of color. So ultimately, the burden should fall on white people mm-hmm. to basically take action and mm-hmm. just do your part. Yeah. It's a privilege for you to be able to get bored of it, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. It's not a big yeah. I mean, my stance is that the police should be abolished, but let me not talk on that. Yeah. That, that, just to clarify, that's Halima's stance. <laughs> we're not, we're stance. not saying anything. <laughs> that's why not, I'm just keeping yeah. quiet, because if I start talking... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm sure we can go into that in a future episode in more context, because there are there is there's a lot of arguments to be had between reform and abolition yeah Yeah. um keeping on a semi similarly depressing note but obviously need to acknowledge this um um shukri abdi who died last um summer i believe um she drowned in the river irwell in berry whilst out with Mm. i quote friends though there's been suggestions that they were her bullies Mm Um, the, her family are suing GMB, Greater Manchester Police, Good. claiming institutional racism. Good. Now, just to clarify, um, bit of context. Um, Shukri Abdi came to two thousand. It came to, came to the UK age twelve as a refugee in two thousand twelve. Um, she wanted to make friends. She was bullied. These people knew that she couldn't swim, and yet they took her to the river. And that's where she drowned. The new coroner report has said that she died due to peer pressure. Um, Lawyers wanted a judgment of unlawful killing due to one of the kids involved recently claiming that they accidentally pushed Shukri into the river. Mm -hmm. But this was rejected by um, the judge based on um, the fact that there's no evidence any of the children had any basis to kill. One child breached duty of care and made serious error of judgment. How can you say there's no basis to kill? You pushed a a, a child who can't swim into a river. Yeah. And let's not forget the school also covered it up. Like they yeah. really did a whole rebrand. They changed their name and everything. It's disgusting. It is man. disgusting. And also you've got the statistic that eleven million pounds spent on Madeline McCann. Mm-hmm. Yet mm-hmm. the police initially mm-hmm. refused to even open an investigation mm-hmm. into this despite there being eyewitnesses. It, it, these figures just speak they for just themselves. Speak for themselves. It's, happen- the- it's happening here. Like this is Bury, this is Manchester, like it's I don't right know, I'm just reluctant to speak because I feel like there's so much there's so much that can be said, but like yeah. what can be said that has not been said before. It is true. And like we were saying last week, there's no real excuse for not in- engaging and educating yourself on these issues because there's so many pretty demographics on Instagram now that you can go and check out that lit- they literally have the information there in bullet points. Mm-hmm. I criticize I'm being a bit skeptical about it because I'm saying oh they're pretty and because people like to repost them just for the sake of it. But at the same time they are very useful in terms of collating all this information together and basically being the, put in a place where you can go and actually find yeah. out very easily what's happened i think that, i think the thing is yeah like if you lived through last summer like if you saw what, everything that happened with with the blm protests like because this really was like a very global movement right mm. um and you haven't been radicalized uh, fam <laughs> i don't know how you sleep at night but that's on you isn't it mm. right i think we've got to move on from this now but just want to reiterate if you even if you do think that you know enough 
regarding this type of thing there's always more that you can learn there's always more that you can do so just keep the wheels turning basically bit of more light-hearted celeb news now riz ahmed has apparently got married so congrats yeah, to him he has. um i'm congrats especially because i know he's had a bit of a tough time throughout covid i think he's lost two family members so but did I'll... you see like how he said that they met so they was in a coffee shop and apparently they went to both reach to use the same plug for the laptop charger uh... and their hands met and then <laughs> the, the, everyone on twitter is like they're apps, they're just chatting maca like they slid into each other's dms and they just don't want to admit <laughs> it and they've turned it into this like really grand rom-com mm. type of scenario that is actually that's such like a if it is true it's such a um well, I know obviously they're not Gen Z, but that is such like a Gen Z love story. Isn't it? Like it's such I mean? a Disney ca- like, Disney Channel. like hands met over the laptop plug. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and then also Bollywood's Anushka Sharma and Kukta Virat Kohli have rec- uh, not recommended. They've welcomed a baby girl. So congrats cute, to them. Cute. Right. And we are back. That was Zayn Malik and the lovely sid from the internet that's a great collab yeah when loves around honestly two of i wouldn't say my great artists two great artists it's definitely my favorite voices zane not so much but definitely i definitely like both of them a lot Mm -hmm. as artists and i'm really encouraged as well because um sid put on her instagram that apparently they got together and recorded a load of songs together oh so okay in the future, we deserve maybe we yeah, deserve hopefully they'll come out some point in the future but yeah zane's album came out yesterday i think it's his third album called nobody's listening i gave it a little listen yesterday while i was doing the washing up and i think ultimately i like it yeah. i'll listen to it again there's yeah. tracks on there that are very decent mm-hmm. at the same time and i liked also how because on his last album that basically flopped because again he put too many tracks the on it. Best songs, yeah. I remember and he, that. also the problem with zane is he doesn't do any promo no he, he doesn't know promo doesn't. but you know like i really feel like it, i mean i don't know what his his audience and market is like in the uk but i feel like he does not get his props in the u sorry in the u.s i don't know what his market is like but i feel like he does not get his props in the uk yeah like he is actually a very great r&b artist mm-hmm. like he has bare great songs yeah and i like how he ever since he's left one direction it's very clear how he likes to interpolate in his um pakistani Culture, background yeah. into his music mm-hmm. even though he's not uh, I, I, I can't remember whether on this album whether he actually did anything in urdu but he actually you can tell by the way that he sings, like the way it's yeah, definitely taken yeah, yeah, from yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, the and vibrations in his yeah, voice, yeah, 100%. Yeah, so it's nice that he's actually staying true to himself in that sense. Right, so moving on from music, we're going to get on to our topic of the day, which is basically education. I don't want to say education on its own because we're sort of talking going to be talking a bit about private views, public education, and navigating white educational spaces as a person of color um so we're gonna get into a lot of stuff really but to start off with we're just gonna talk a bit about our own personal histories in education Mm -hmm. so um halima why don't you start literally from the very start what's your (laughs) what what just give us a brief outline of like what your education education has been um so i went to a uh uh like a 
public uh, primary school in Longsight. Well, it's in Fallowfield technically, but like it served the people of Longsight. Yeah. Um, and it was. I mean, those of you don't who those of you who don't know Longsight is like a very deprived, economically deprived area. Um, it's like seventy two percent non white demographic. Um, the school was obviously like most inner city schools where there are higher numbers of ethnic minorities. Um, very underfunded. Um, yeah. And then I went to private school for a year, um, mm. which was like... So that was that was year seven, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. My yeah. first year of high school, I went to private school, um, which also was in Fallowfield. It was actually coincidentally, literally mm. just down the road from my uh, primary school. And honest to God, you could have dropped me in Timbuktu and I would have had less of a culture shock um, from going to that, from that public school to that private school. Mm. Um because the, the primary school that I went to, again, like it, people were either almost there were there were like no white people, but basically there was maybe like two or three white people in like every year. Um, it was predominantly South Asian people. I think it was like ninety eight percent Muslims in that school. Um, it wasn't even England, bro. Like it was not, I did not go to school in England, but um, the majority of people were either kids of immigrants or were immigrants themselves. Um, yeah yeah so so then so then to go to a private school where most of the kids had been in private education for most of their life um massive massive culture shock it was just very weird and i just i didn't settle basically i could not settle um all the girls thought that i was like i mean they they just found me very entertaining because i just was so not used to their way of like life yeah um and then i went to a a comprehensive high school like i moved um to a comprehensive high uh, you know what i would have got kicked out of that private school to be honest with you like i was just i was just getting i was a bit of a naughty kid to be honest mm. with you i was in detention all the time i just never de- did any work um i would just talk a lot be really cheeky to teachers and stuff like that um and then i went to a comprehensive high school comprehensive thick, sixth form i went to university of warwick for my undergrad and then i went to cambridge for my masters all right cool so I I wanted to ask you as well, like, um, with regards to this discussion, Mm. obviously university is, if you're going to look at it logically, um, it's private education, but are we, are we going to consider that? Cause it's like, I want to say it's accessible to everyone, but it, it, cause it isn't, but it's, um, it's more, it's a different thing that there's no, there's no counterpart to, no, there's no free universities you know the same way yeah. that there's free high schools and yeah. university is not compulsory in the same way so yeah i, yeah, I think we, it's fair to make a distinction there between sure. like um high school college and sure yeah so coming on to my own experience um how do i start this <laughs> uh, so i'm trying to figure out what the context of this is i sp- i kind of want to give context on my um the background of my like family as well so that i can like sort of like go it so everything makes sense so on that note the year was 1940 something <laughs> <laughs> um so um i am indian on my dad's side and through that the subcategory of that i am cindy for those of you that don't know Sindh is a part now majority in pakistan um india for those of you again that don't know that i don't know who's gonna listen to this that doesn't know this india and pakistan Mm -hmm. um and bangladesh all used to be one big india basically so basically yeah so basically i am cindy my both my paternal granddad and grandma 
are Sindhi, though my granddad was from near Punjab and my grandma was from more near Karachi. Um, and obviously partition happened. And I think I know for certain that my um, granddad's family, I don't know if they were like well off, but they were certainly like doing all right because one of them was like a doctor for the British Raj. So obviously they were like, they were like respected Mm -hmm. in that sense. But the middle class. Yeah. But obviously partition happened and having to move, they basically lost everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, I don't know who's going to listen to this that doesn't know what partition is, but basically when... um, The three countries split. Yeah, so when Britain left um, the massive India that used to be, they basically didn't really take much consideration into how they were going Uh, to leave it. They intentionally destabilised it, like, basically. It it can be argued, <laughs> as in no, as in like there are papers, as in yeah, the, yeah. There, there are records and papers and stuff like that, and yeah, and and this is what they did. This is what the Brits did across all colonies. Um, there was a there's a name to this. I forgot what the name was because there's the name of the project where they basically burnt. You know, in in the because obviously throughout the forties, fifties, sixties, it was the wave of kind of like decolonization yeah. in the post war period. Um, and they actually had a project where they literally. Um, burnt colonial papers so that people would not be able to see truly the extent of their colonial endeavors and how mm. horrific they were. But um, no, that that is what they intentionally yeah. did. Like there are uh, colonial records and stuff with meetings between the um, uh, Viscount and all that kind of stuff that you could yeah. see where they literally talk about. I, you know, the guy that decided where Mom. the line between India and Pakistan was going to be. Yeah. He, he literally... He Did ne- it in one he, lunch. Yeah. Like yeah. He, he'd ne- I think he'd only been to India like once. Yeah. Like he didn't know mm-hmm. like anything mm-hmm. about it. He's just thought... Oh. Mount Batten, yeah. He, he go, did it burn. over one... Literally, like very arbitrarily drew a line here, drew a yeah. line there. But again, this is the this is the case in all of um, Britain's former colonies. Like if we look across, like for example, Africa... Um, or I mean, all borders are arbitrary anyway. Yeah. But they would basically like it was a colonial tactic. Of the colonial tactic at the time of the colonial project, obviously divide and rule, um, divide and conquer, and you know all of that. And then afterwards, they would like get various different ethnic demographics or like tribal groups and whatever else, and group them within like certain countries. Um, obviously, if there's internal factions, then it destabilizes the country. And yeah, I mean, it was a colonial tactic. Yeah. But in terms of partition, it it was very, very violent, very, very bloody. 14 million people displaced. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what the figure for people that were di- that de- that died. I think it was a million or over a million. Yeah. And the way in which that happened was basically there's been a long-standing antagonism between Muslims and Hindus in yeah. this subcontinent. But mm-hmm. this was basically egged on by the British whilst yeah, they again, were there. Again, the, the policy of divide and conquer, yeah. yeah. And basically, Britain left and basically were like, basically left for this bloodbath to um, happen. And it basically, all, not all, but the majority of Hindus that were living in what is now Pakistan moved to what is now India. And Oh, so your family were Hindu and they moved? Yes, yes. Sorry, my family um, on my dad's side is Hindu. And they moved from um, Sindh, that general area which is now pakistan mm-hmm. my granddad's family moved to um mumbai and my grandma's family moved to indoor and yeah and like i said um just to clarify as well this happened um 
vice versa as well so a lot of muslims that were living in what is now india had to move to pakistan yeah as i mean well. 14 million people were displaced yeah. this is not an uncommon story it's yeah. unimaginable yeah so obviously having moved like i said so the reason why i'm talking about this is because before partition my granddad's side of the family at least were quite not I, I i don't know the exact but i know that they weren't they weren't bad off basically and when the partition happened they basically lost everything when these like refugee camps yeah. they had to basically start from the bottom again mm-hmm. um i'm pretty sure my granddad started a factory but i can't remember exactly what it was um Probably textiles yeah i feel like is that for some reason buttons or bottles is coming to mind oh like, okay i don't know but but anyway basically this is a bit started. of a tangent. Yeah, this is a bit of a tangent. <laughs> but basically my point is my my dad was born in Mumbai in 1965 and him and his two other siblings, the conditions in which they lived in weren't great. They mm. weren't... It. I, I've, I'm lucky enough to say that I've managed to go there once before my grandparents moved to live in America with my uncle. Um, and it was basically this one-bedroom there's like two two rooms really short and at one time there were seven people living in that small cramped space and but still they obviously want my dad to have like the best education um i don't know whether he went to private school i know that it was actually run by jewish people oh okay i think um but yeah so my dad eldest child syndrome sort of thing always had a very hard work ethic and i think he's had a very strong relationship with his granddad as well who was kind of like it very like much um encouraging him in that field so he tra- he ended up training to be a doctor in india which is where the MB- mbbs came from <laughs> and then eventually um he actually he was in like i think it was like 27 and he got sponsored to come over here in 1992 and he moved over here and was basically um there was four months where apparently he was waiting like to actually like begin mm. medical training and he was basically living in extreme poverty at that mm. time like his it's one of the stories he's always tells me was yeah i was basically living on i can't remember if it was a pound a day or a pound a week but he's basically he used to eat potatoes and used to reward himself with a mars bar at the end of each week sort of thing yeah like those sort of things obviously he has he he managed to successfully train over here he is a gp now he um works like a lot he obviously he's earning decent money because he's a doctor and but he still continues to work more than he needs to to provide for his kids even though we're all grown up um so the reason why i'm providing that context is basically because though i went to a comprehensive primary school which i did enjoy and i think i was quite lucky in some senses it was in warrington um and it wasn't very diverse but i think as primary school as as comprehensive primary schools go i think it was actually like quite decent in terms of like they did a lot of like kind of creative music stuff which i really enjoyed and i think that kind of shaped me to who i am today but then when it came to secondary school i was a my parents basically said uh, in year six, it was basically like, yes, get a tutor and then you're going to go to take this exam 
um, in Eleven Manchester. Yeah. yeah. And um, I was just like, okay, yeah. I like, feel like ah. every South Asian, every, I'm pretty sure every South Asian kid in Manchester has taken the 11 plus. That, it, it wasn't... Like I don't actually know even in my own, like f- in my family, everyone has. No, it wasn't even 11 plus. Well, it, ba- it was the same stuff as the 11 plus. Like, like entrance exams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I basically did the exams for Ulti Boys mm. and MGS. And um, MGS is Manchester Grammar School, for those of you who don't know. Um, and, yeah, I got in, and it was basically like, yeah, you go in there. I was just, I was like, yeah, same, but, same, yeah. same. So I went to, when I first started high school, I went to Manchester High School for Girls, which is like the girls' version across the road yeah, yeah. from where Carlos went. Yeah, and I don't think I had any particular version to go in. I think, obviously, I was a bit sad that I was going to be leaving, like, all the people that I'd basically been to primary school with because yeah. they were all going to go to the local one. Which by no, I don't think by no means was the local school like bad mm. in any sense. I think I I think I would have been perfectly happy going there, yeah. but at the same time, obviously, I was like I was sad to see them go. Um, but it's weird when I think back about it because I'm like, why did I not like? It was there was never a discussion. There was never like a do you want to go to this school mm. or this school. I think the main discussion was do you want to go to Alty or do you want to yeah, go to Yeah, no, so same, like... same. I mean, like in in like my family, they'd start training you for eleven plus when you was in like year four, <laughs> like yeah. two years before, because um, they pin so much of their like. So again, context like similar to your situation, my family kind of similar thing so my my dad and his brothers kind of came over in the late 80s um early 90s no wait, sorry late 70s early 80s um my dad is like a super smart person he's very very intelligent but he never got to go, he had to drop he went to school for he went to burnage high school mm-hmm. um for a few years and then he had to drop out basically to provide for the family um he at like 13 14 and he's always had like this chip on it again like living in, in extreme poverty there'll be like 20 of them in like a two-bed gaff yeah um and he's i think he's just always had like this kind of chip on his shoulder about the fact that he never got to do school because he never he didn't have the choice like yeah. his older brother said to him like you have to drop out you have to work to provide for the family um which is why he's always been extra extra um like in, uh extra extra uh, what's the word just just wanting for us to have basically yeah. what he could not you know mm-hmm. so that's why he's always invested in our education so even throughout high school i think from the age of like five or six i've always had um, private tuition <laughs> like i've just had a private tutor since i was in like year one probably but do you think you'd be in the same place that you are today if you hadn't had that um well my mom did a lot so when i say i've had it it was like on and off on and off more times on than off um, but my mum did a lot with us when we were young. So like we had, when I say we had a really strict like upbringing in terms of education, fam, we would like go to school, we'd come home, we'd go to mosque to do like Arabic lessons for two hours. Then we'd come home, we'd do homework for like an hour to two hours and then we'd go to sleep. Mm. And in the weekends and in the holidays, our daily routine was two hours of work, two hours of rest, two hours of work, two hours of rest. Yeah. Every single, every day, every holiday, every weekend, um, and obviously the private, so so my parents, they, neither of them were educate, formally educated in this country. Um, they did what they could, which was at a very basic level. And then when I hit like, you know, key stage two, three or whatever, and they couldn't really do much more, that's when obviously then they supplemented it with private tuition. Yeah. Um, and again, the same thing, like when I, from, from like year four, year five, started then training you to do entrance exams and 11 yeah. pluses and stuff, because they just have 
they pin everything on to this kind of they project it onto this idea of like if we give our kids a private education then you know that will get them ahead and that will get them yeah. far and all that kind of stuff yeah which is endearing like definitely and it's like it's yeah. it's nice it's nice to be able to give your kids what you didn't have but then there's it's a lot more complicated than that yeah, like, and like everything surrounding it for example i remember um at the end of year seven like you know like you do like end of year exams yeah. like i remember i used to really struggle with geography like i just didn't get like reading maps and oh stuff. my god like, geography i used to get in trouble i used to have detention every geography lesson hmm. Because the teacher's name was Mr. Warburton. <laughs> the teacher's name was Mr. Warburton. <laughs> and every week I would answer the register like, yes, Mr. Bread. <laughs> he'd tell oh, me to dear. stop. <laughs> he'd give me his attention. And then the next week I'd do it. I, I was a rascal. I was such yeah. a, just unprovoked, <laughs> just stupid stuff. Uh, Sorry. But, but honestly, like, I used to, I, I've I'm always been a good kid. Like, mm. I think if I had been if i had had your sort of energy i might have had a bit more trouble assimilating into private school education yeah. mm-hmm. but at the same time but then because obviously i've always been like a bit of a goody two shoes and very uh-huh. quiet very just getting on with work i think it was it was a, it was a shock to the system nevertheless but i think also because <laughs> it was sort of like I, I was gonna have that anyway because obviously i was moving to high school yeah like yeah yeah it was yeah, a bit yeah. Like, it was always yeah. gonna be an adjustment period yeah, yeah. but yeah, so I did really bad in the end of year geography exam in year seven. And did your like, parents take it really personally? Yeah. So like <laughs> I did fine in everything else, like either really good or like average. Yeah. And I spent the whole of summer and my dad's probably listening to this and like I'm not having a go at you or anything. Like I'm I'm probably gonna get an airful later, like regardless of how I say this. But I spend the whole of like year seven summer sat down with doing my dad. Geography. Yeah, doing yeah, geography. Bam. And like he was being like proper straight me about it. And I look back and I'm just like, mate, like Why did ge- you do that? Yeah, and also, <laughs> first of all, year seven. Yeah. <laughs> Second of all, so, geography. Yeah, geography. So like, next... It's it's not even choice. Like I, I didn't end up doing it for GCSE yeah. because like you don't have to do it. Like the most it was, irrelevant subject. It was a I'm sorry I didn't know the, yeah. the 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 name of a river, Dad. Yeah. And it's just like <laughs> I don't know how to break it to you. You had a dissy dad, like <laughs> really, really, I had no idea. It's a very universal experience, love. <laughs> uh but yeah. Stuff like that. So now that we've talked a bit about like primary school, secondary school, just a few statistics to reflect on. Um, I looked these up before coming here today. So these are like government reports that have said this. Britain's most influential people are over five times more <clears throat> likely to have been to a fee-paying school than the general pay- than the general population. Mm. Only seven percent of British people are privately educated apart um though two-fifths 39 percent are in top positions so clearly there's a disproportionate um comparison there in that only like less than 10 percent of the population is going to private school yet out of that 10 percent then they're basically taking up 40 um percent of the top positions in the uk so clearly going to private school does enable people to take these top positions. Mm-hmm. Looking at um, ethnic background of people that go to private school, a census for the Independent Schools Council in 2011, which I think there's, isn't there meant to be another census this year? I think so, because it's well, every 10, 10 years. years yeah. So this is from 10 years ago, but this is 
74.5% of pupils are from white British backgrounds that go to private school and 25.5% are from ethnic minority backgrounds. So I think that kind of proves that what we're going to be talking about later, that certainly navigating private education mm. is, it, it's a white space, basically. Yeah. You, can't, you can't deny that. The figures yeah. are there. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at those statistics, I think... 75% to 25% that does actually act that does accurately reflect the general composition of the UK yeah in terms of ethnic background so i think mm. it would be hard to argue that there should be more yeah, okay. people from ethnic backgrounds because then people would just argue well that then you'd be doing it disproportionately yeah. to the statistics but at the same time those figures do prove that it is definitely a white space that yeah. we're navigating um then I found it actually really hard to find statistics relating to class um, within private school. Um, but that which I did found was seven, sorry, 63% of privately educated people see themselves as middle or upper class, with only, whereas only 24% of state educated see themselves as middle or upper cl- okay. middle class. Okay, so very big disparity there. Yeah. And there was this other figure which is more than 60 percent of oxford university students went to private or grammar school and only one out of ten consider themselves to be working class um and just a bit of history about grammar schools as well because i found this like quite interesting because i remember i actually um it's like proper like neat behavior but basically (laughs) i did a project in um school where i basically did a project on my high school um which obviously manchester grammar school um was a private school so i looked into the history of it and i remember when i was like thinking about this episode i remember thinking about how it used to be a um what's it called it used to be very much like grammar schools were for they were still very they were made they were all male because basically i want to say females (laughs) schools were only for the male male males basically how do i say this about like sounding males females like literally like women weren't allowed (laughs) yeah women weren't allowed to be educated basically but the um men that were allowed to be educated um these private schools or these grammar schools were set up for the disadvantaged as like a means of like educating them really yeah so i because i remember actually studying and like it used to be like that loads of like people that were clever but came from disadvantaged backgrounds used to go and live in these like schoolhouses basically sort of thing oh that's what a grammar school is. yeah and oh. then it was in the victorian era that grammar okay. schools basically got taken private schools got taken on by these headmasters that basically turned it into this sort of middle class elite, elite thing yeah. and it basically became this like rite of passage that you would send your the, the upper class would, would send, send their, their kids to yeah. private school so it actually started off with good intentions and then basically in the victorian yeah, era sort of like that. yeah interesting that's what i found like from looking up this is on wikipedia but like <laughs> I, I, I do remember reading like about this like in the 15 1600s because apparently grammar schools have been around or independent schools have been around since like the earliest one is like 500 um ad oh, which is like obviously ages ago but yeah apparently <laughs> they started out with good intentions but obviously mm. didn't stick so i suppose what we really want to hear halima was your argument because i know that you have very strong opinions about private education so what is your reasoning for wanting 
to abolish private education because it's like fundamentally unfair like um obviously the statistic you found about class um <clears throat> that there's obviously a very um distinct kind of like um class disparity between the people who attend private and um public educations um and also i mean if you think about it what what private schools require hefty fees there are some private schools a lot of private schools that require fees that are greater than university fees um if you don't have access to that if you if you can't afford that what does that mean that your child then deserves a less than education like i just let's actually just deep for a second what is private education private education if you ask me like for a definition it's no i'm, I'm sorry not not definite no, not like, in terms of like definition what it, what but like is. what do, what does it mean like like what what <laughs> just... it's paying for your kids to have a better education so why is not every kid entitled to that why mm. is that based on how much money you make and by the way like um this whole thing is like steeped in the idea of meritocracy right which is the idea that um you good will come to you and fortune and success will come to you if you work hard and the uk has a very demo de met metacritic um oh my god i can't talk today i'm sorry guys the uk has this mindset where they believe in meritocracy where they believe that if you work hard you'll be successful yeah. um and flourish and it's just not true it's, 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 it's really not the american true. dream isn't it? basically it is, yeah. yeah 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 um so if you even look at like what cl how how class exists in the first place like if someone is not able to give their child like the best education possible it's not even because that person doesn't want to or that that child every child deserves it by the way but it's not even that 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 parent doesn't want to they just can't because of their because of the the way that capitalism works like there's mm -hmm. always gonna be the working class yeah and i think that some people would as like an argument to why private education should remain in place would say oh yeah but there's bursary systems but then even if bursary systems do exist it's token but, yeah it's token and also it's like the majority of people are still going to be these people that can pay to go there basically yeah, exactly exactly and it's like and oh god it's just annoying because it's like give me the reason why what kids are given in private schools that why kids in public school can't be given the same thing like why yeah. if we can do it for kids with money why can't we do it for other kids yeah. it's possible it's also like i was thinking about this as well i was thinking about uh, i was like thinking about potential arguments basically yeah. as to why um private education shouldn't be abolished or why you would be against it mm. and i started thinking oh yeah but aren't there some people who have so much untapped potential and that they're not that they aren't basically they don't access that unless they go to private school and then i thought yeah but then if private school wasn't a thing and all the money went into education in uh, public education mm -hmm. surely we'd be able to have everyone on a level playing field yeah it needs to be, be universal to, exactly yeah everyone would be able they'd they'd get that support that they need because yeah. they'd have the access to the same yeah. education like let's you know what when i asked that question before what is private education let's deep for a second the notion that a child is entitled to more resources more help a higher quality education more extracurriculars simply because their parents have more money is that not preposterous is that not preposterous having said that obviously i understand like 
this is not um, a, a dig at anybody who's had a private education or whose parents choose for them to go to a private education. And again, I, I can only speak on from the positionality of being an ethnic minority um, where our, and I know this is probably the case for you having said what you've said about your family background, where um, like ethnic minority parents send their kids to private schools to mitigate um, the the systemic disadvantages that ethnic minorities have in this country, basically. So like my dad obviously didn't get to have an education for himself. He wanted us to do it um, because he, he couldn't. And also he is a very aware, having started his own business and, and everything, like he's very, very aware of institutional disadvantages towards non-white people in this country. And for him, it's all about, it's basically essentially playing the game in it because it's like, even though you can fundamentally disagree against um, the note of what a private school is and what it stands for and what it means, you understand that your child still has to live in this capitalist structure, you know, in this capitalist world. And therefore you have to prepare and give your child as much of a head start as possible because you know that eventually when they get to these places and they get, you know, even when they grow up and get into workplaces, they will always just be at a systemic disadvantage, you know? Yeah. Yeah, this is my, like, because me and Mianka, like, literally 24, 23 years old and already having debate about, like, kids and stuff like that. Yeah. But, like, I think I managed to, like, kind of bring her more onto my side now. But initially, she was very um, inclined towards um, private education because of the advantages it gives you and because yeah. of the... Um, she also felt as well um because i think um with regards to stuff that her other family members have been through um that same sex schools which is a whole other ballpark really yeah. um, same sex schools are better in terms of um bullying and that she fe- she felt that if she'd gone to a um mixed mixed, mixed school then she would have been bullied basically and she felt that when she was surrounded by girls it was more elevating but then my argument to that was that that i'm sure that's the case and i'm sure that can be the case Mm. for some people but are you not setting people up for a false sense of security for do by doing that because ultimately Mm. whilst whilst some people might thrive in that environment Mm -hmm. that's not what the world is like and surely if you sh- you should support your kids and you shouldn't support them to you be them as yeah well. be the best that they can be but at the same time luring them into this false sense of security and I think that's for everyone as well I think a lot of and I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing because I think a lot of people do need the culture shock but a lot of people will go to private school and feel really entitled like I know no one, see yeah okay yeah, yeah one, of, one of the things that pissed me off um was um or peed me off sorry i don't know if i'm allowed to say that but um one of the things that used to annoy me was at mgs there was this constant saying oh top five percent we're the top five percent i was literally like no like literally like why it's so elitist yeah so like yep, you yep. like do you not acknowledge the reason uh-huh. we like how you are part of that statistic because yep. you're in a privileged enough position to be able to do that yeah just because you're <clears throat> part of this body that is producing really good exam results like and also like let's look at like obviously like i've made the case for why it should be universal for every child but also let's look at what private school does to wider society right um there's a the statistic that you said i can't remember it now but the a large percentage of um 
like government workers and people in politics and people basically yeah. who run the country have had private education. Yeah, 40%. Right. Um, so also like the way that these schools, how many, how many of our prime ministers had went to like eat, eat or Harrow, like basically those two schools, yeah. didn't it? like almost every, yeah, everyone. I'm pretty sure it is basically, I think for some reason, the statistic, like apart from two is coming to mind. I don't know if that's right. true. Or, I don't know if it's that's basically like almost everyone yeah. though. Yeah. Like I can say that with yeah. certainty. Um, so let's, let's look at that. Right. Especially if you go to schools like that, you know what it is that you're paying for, obviously like materialistically resources and all that kind of stuff. But also these kids are really groomed. You know, they're really groomed with a sense of entitlement to believe that um, that they will go out and they will get these things and they will get, the, you know, yeah. be in these positions and earn this much and whatever and being, have this much power because they are entitled to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that is really what's dangerous because, you know, you spoke before about this false sense of identity. People who, um, you know, have been exclusively in private education and whatever else. For the most part, um, you know, if their parents can afford them to be in private education for so long, they will come from relatively wealthy backgrounds. And I know this is me talking like more at the extreme end of the spectrum. Um, and they they just will not have a grasp of what real life is or yeah. what life is like for people outside of their demographic or outside of their worldview. So then when they then go on to become prime ministers and run the country, like... They do so already with this elitist worldview, you know? Yeah. Which is so detrimental. Yes, we are back. That was Mashallah by The Moonlight featuring the Kaka twin sisters. And if you don't know, that track actually is quite unique because it doesn't just feature one pair of twins. But if you oh, just two, two, two pairs no of twins, if you, got, if you want one pair of twins, you got the cheeky girls. Um, <laughs> who else is there? I don't know. Like, yeah. Cheeky that, that's the cheeky girls. <laughs> but um, honestly, like when I found that out, I was like, what? Like two sets of twins on one track. Like how often does that happen? But now I really dig that vibe. And also like um, it proper gives me, um, reminds me of like Te Amo by Rihanna. I don't know why, but it seems like a similar sort of vibe oh, really? to that. Yeah. Like I was thinking about doing the mashup um, to it, but then I was Ooh, like... Oh, maybe you should. Yeah. But then also I was like... It's instrumental, know, I think. Mm, but is then it like al- a string? Is it like a string? Yeah, a and string, also it's yeah. in the same key as well. So oh, okay. like, But then I was also like, Mashallah and Tiamo. I don't know if that's like opposing types of messages, maybe. I don't know. I mean, the song, I'm sure, I wasn't even listening to the lyrics, but I'm sure the song is about, like, love and lust and any, yeah, anyway. To be fair, yeah, I do remember the lyric, like, toy hips like a belly dancer. Yeah, so, there we go. Yeah. It's, it's all, already it, there. We'll allow it. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just out here trying not to get cancelled. You know how it is nowadays, like... Nah, yeah. I mean, listen, it's, it's, it's an Arabic word that people use uh, 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 prolifically anyway. It's used mm. so much in, like, hip-hop and all that kind of stuff, you know, so... True, yeah. I suppose I was just, like, in my... um place as a non-arabic or non um muslim yeah non-muslim i didn't want to use it out of context (laughs) but yeah no maybe i will do that then because i like doing mashups anyway we're returning back to the topic of education and we are now going to talk a bit about navigating um white educational spaces which in the uk is most educational spaces if you want proof of that just rewind to before because we we clarified why like the statistic which allow us to basically say that um 
so obviously i think university mm. is a quite a good and obviously sixth form for you as well is quite like a good example of this yeah so you want to i know you talked before about your experience in sixth form and why it was a bit exasperating for you um do you want to just briefly go over that again <clears throat> yeah so i went from um obviously then i went to a private sorry public school and then uh, public sixth form as well and it was again in a predominantly white area predominantly white student body um and whenever the topic of racism would come up obviously i tried to tell them there's no such thing as reverse racism and there will just be a lot of people having a lot to say mm. you know yeah <laughs> i can Sorry. imagine but yeah um and i'm really curious actually to know what your experience was at university because obviously i know you studied mm. english at undergrad yeah. but especially i'm interested to know what the ethnic makeup was on your um, master's course yeah. as well because like obviously studying the, south my Asian master's studies. was really it was quite interesting so 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 to be honest uh, so they're obviously warwick and cambridge are both russell group universities and i say that because um they tend to be more white than like non-russell group because obviously like yeah. they're seen as a like I, I do not subscribe to any of these ideals, by the way, but just generally, like, socially, they are seen to be, like, more elite and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, um, Warwick was obviously, again, predominantly white, but I... Uh, bro, I was just an unserious candidate in it, so, like, I didn't really, like, make many friends or, like, really involve myself in the social life or anything like that so it just didn't really get to me that much mm. um and then cambridge was an interesting experience because so i did obviously south asian studies at my masters um in a cohort of 16 people on my course three were white and one was chinese and everyone else was south asian um so in that sense and again like i did not make i I'm very selective. I just don't really like making new friends. So like, again, I went to Cambridge, I made friends with people on my course and then that was it for me. Um, so I didn't really have the quintessentially Cambridge experience, which I know from my friends on my course is very, very white. Um, there were obviously incidences though. So again, like Cambridge is one of those unis that is known as kind of like, you know, very elitist, very, um, very white mm. Um to the point where like it's a problem in terms of their admissions you know like, yeah like no we had that statistic about oxford before wasn't it? and they obviously i obviously got get grouped together quite a lot it was um yeah. let me find it again sorry it was um more than 60 percent of oxford university students went to private or grammar school and only one out of ten considered themselves to be working class yeah. so that obviously speaks for the type of people yeah. that are going to these and, all, and all in terms of like ethnic demographics it was it was mm. a minuscule percentage i think at cambridge uh, of students that mm. were um that were actually from ethnic backgrounds um particularly with black students huge yeah hu like i think i think there was even a photo yeah, of all the black students I, at cambridge how can you fit them I all in one photo literally about to say that i so weird like no i was literally about to say like every year i see that photo of like all the black students of yeah. that year come together yeah and the fact that they can all fit into one photo in like, a university of yeah. like what 20 30 000 students yeah. it's disgraceful very disgraceful but um yeah so i didn't have the very like quintessentially cambridge experience because i was in my course full of south asians and then that's really just where i stuck with but um there were incidences like there was a few incidences so for so um like for those who don't know cambridge is a collegiate university so you have like colleges right um and each college the, the colleges 
because it's such a famous university there's just visitors and tourists all the time it's a very very tourist mm. place um so we have like porters basically um and there have been a few for example my when i had my first ever supervision my first super, my supervisions were in trinity college which is the most it, trinity college alone has so there's 32 colleges trinity college alone has more money than all the 31 of the colleges combined that's how rich they are it's ridiculous mm. um and they, I mean, a lot of their fortune is also linked with like the slave trade and stuff like that. Yeah. Just to give you a little bit insight about the, the history of like race and racial dynamics in this place. Um, and the first supervision that I went to, obviously it's my first time going there and I didn't know where my supervisor's room was. So I was kind of like just, and it's, it's huge as well, the college. So I'm just kind of wandering around the grounds and then the porters approach me and they're like, what, what are you doing here? Um, Basically, they thought I just wandered off into the streets, into this place. Um, and I was trying to explain to them, I have a supervision um, with this person. And then they asked me to bring up my email to show them. And I know for a fact, like if it was a white student, yeah. they would not be asking them, show me yeah. the email of your supervision so that we could see that you're supposed to be here. That was one incident. There was another incident where... Um, I'd lost my student card and I'd gotten um, a temporary student card, but like I could only access that if I was a Cambridge student, right? Yeah. And I was trying to get into King's College, which again is one of the richer colleges. Um, and the woman just would not let me in. Like the porter wouldn't let me in. <laughs> and it's ridiculous because then I went around the back way and they had no problems with it. Mm. And the back way is where all the students go through and all the, the front way is where all the tourists go through. So she just did not believe that I was a student there. And there was another time as well time. <laughs> where this was in like Queens College. Again, like one of one. No, it, I can't remember which one it was. It was like Christ or Queens. Again, one of the richer colleges. Um, and I was there because I needed to use the toilet. And if you're a Cambridge student, you have access to any of the colleges, basically. So I needed to use a toilet. It was I was passing um, Christ College on my way home. I went in to use a toilet. I asked one of the guys. And this this time it's, a, it's not even a porter. It's a student. I'm asking him, where's the toilet? This guy comes at me sideways. He's like, why are you here? What are you doing here? Who let you in? I'm like, I'm a student. He goes, show me your student card. Can you student. imagine? Can you imagine? Is this your dad's yard for you to be asking me to show you my student card? Oh, it's ridiculous. Gosh. So, like, I mean, these things happen all the time to, all, to like, I know... I know like other um, black students at Oxford who have who've had basically the same experiences. Yeah, I was going to say, do you know um, who Femi is? No. Femi Nylander. He um, is a few years above me at school, but he's been involved in a lot of um, activism and also he's like been, literally been on like Good Morning Britain and arguing oh, with Piers yeah, Morgan okay. sort of thing. Um, he went to Oxford, studied PPE. He went back for some reason, ended up being... Um, I don't understand what actually happened, but basically he ended up being in the university after hours. Mm. And so he was, he was a past student there. Mm. Um, he, he was just walking in the corridors the following morning and security sent round a picture of him on CCTV what? to the whole university, oh like dangerous man. Like if you see this person, like it's, sort of, it's pathetic. Sort of thing, like, literally, like, and he's like, he's like, he's a past student. Like it's pathetic. It's so pathetic, honestly. Like they're not paying you enough. Are you bored? Like, do you need more responsibilities for you to be uh, accosting students or past students? Like it's, there, it's just weird. There's absolutely no point in even though obviously I think a lot of increasing diversity at universities is tokenistic anyway. Yeah. But there's no point in doing it 
if, if they're not going to be welcome it, yeah, yeah if when you do it, you're just going to treat them that way yeah. like you've literally mm-hmm. given me three separate examples in yeah. which like in, yeah. and correct me if i'm wrong you're only at cambridge for like a year right mm-hmm. yeah. yeah in the space well, of a year be. yeah like mm-hmm. exactly and, and and it's not even like it was not even like the porters and stuff like that the students as well like i remember so i told you like i just did not really engage in like the, the cambridge social life um because i'm not about it but yeah. there was one incident where one of my friends she like basically begged me to come to this social it was a cheese and wine night so already this story is ridiculous how pretentious um she she forced me to go to this cheese and wine night with her and i went and i'm obviously like I'm sure you guys can hear just from me being on air, quite boisterous, quite loud, quite flamboyant. Um, Proper Mancunian. Right. And there was this guy there who I was chatting to, who's very friendly, like nice guy. And then at some point in the conversation, he laughs and he's like, ha 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 ha, you are so not the typical Cambridge student. I love it. (laughs) I just looked at him and I went, how am I not? Like what? And you know, like what he said was because it's steeped in like, you know, elitism and classism and the fact that I'm a loud brown woman and I have a distinct Northern accent and, you know, yeah. See, see that that is like what you're telling me is is shocking. Like, I can't say that I've ever been through anything like as bad as But even, even even those things, like even though they, they were occurring like frequently, they were they're more kind of like microaggressions you know whereas there are other students who have faced more i mean like the guy that you gave the example of literally yeah. being having his photos sent round. like yeah i think this isn't necessarily i don't know if i'm viewing this i'm viewing this in terms of race this this situation i'm about to describe yeah and it's not particularly i don't think it's embedded in race i don't think it was anything to do with that i think it's just it, it links to it and it kind of is another reason why like i was really glad once i left private school so this incident happened in year um 13 Mm. so like i was this is like final year like i was weeks away from turning 18 at this time like i was like an adult pretty Mm. much and i remember i was wandering around somewhere and we we used to have these like porter type people not not porter they're called proctors they're basically like in charge of like discipline and the whole thing was just stupid anyway already that just sounds you could just tell that they just loved like just going around shouting at people like something that i literally i i I don't like getting in trouble so i used to like avoid them like the plague like i literally like did not (laughs) want because i was never up to trouble but at the same time like they'd find any reason yeah and like on this occasion it was i didn't have my top button done up which is like oh my gosh heavens above i don't have my top button done up like literally ridiculous but you probably know from like you only know me for like two episodes now but like i have like quite like a interesting resting face it's sort of like just a bit like it looks a bit like i'm sort of like dead inside pretty Mm -hmm, much and um so like they told me to do my top button up and then i obviously I, i did it and as i was walking away they're like oh come back here and they were like oh why do you smirk at me and i was like i was literally like what oh, <laughs> and, and then, no, so I, I i said i said what and they were like what do you mean what and i was like sorry pardon <laughs> like literally like that and then they had me there and i was basically saying that like, i didn't smirk at you like i'm sorry and then he i'm was, sorry even if you did show me where in the rule book yeah. it says that's grounds for like punishment yeah and then um started having a go at me about oh um 
what's that what's this like why why because i had like um i didn't have a beard but like obviously i'm someone with um a lighter skin complexion but darker hair yeah and um so i had like obviously like a stubble outline or like oh like when have you lost shave like what is and i was just like that to me was like embedded in, I, like I said, it's not embedded in race, but I definitely view no, it from no, a racial but, perspective. Yeah, one hundred percent. Because you can't help like yeah, I can't help South that. Asian people. <laughs> we have darker, thicker hair. Yeah, like literally, <laughs> and like I don't, he came up, to, and they, they literally like was like going on to me for ages about this before they let me go. And I, I remember they bumped into me again, like on another occasion, when like oh, like when are you gonna start your facial hair? And I was like literally, like, I was literally like, at this point, I was shaving once every week, and I was literally like, to him, like if I shave anymore, like I was literally talking before, my skin will not yeah. take it. Like, like, I don't understand what you want me to do. <laughs> like, and like, I, at the time, I was just really peed off about it because I was just like, it was just like, I, I was just They're so, just I was, up, I was so angry on so many different accounts. The account that I was 18 and being told like how to do my facial hair. I was literally like, the, the, all these other reasons were literally annoying me. But it's not until now, I actually, when, when I, I was like thinking about it in like this episode and I was like, you know what? This is actually like borderline trauma. I know mm. it. I know people go through so much worse, but hand on my heart, I can honestly say that like, I tend to get dreams sometimes when I get stressed. Like I tend to like go back to p- previous stressful situations mm. and that situation and that person comes back to me in my mind like a nightmare. And I, I'm, yeah, and I'm literally like, this is actual like trauma. Like the fact this mm. is like coming back and, like, and I'm just like, this is Gosh. why like I, I'm not for these institutions like this. Mm-hmm, like literally mm-hmm. these like typically white um, academic spaces, which literally if there was, if I, for example, if I was in their position, like I would never have said to someone like, cause it wasn't even a bid. It was stubble for goodness sake. No, like, but that's why are you like, talking to, first of all, why are you talking to anyone like that? Or why are you smirking? What, yeah. what are you my parent? Yeah. Like, do you put food on my table? Do you put a roof over my head? Yeah. Are you my parent? I want, in fact, I'll go give me your job description. Show me where in your job description it says that you need to be harassing and costing yeah. students. Well, that's literally what they were known for. Like, it's ridiculous. it's weird. It's just it's just a power play, isn't it? Like, it some people, their lives are just so miserable, sad, <laughs> sad, sad, pathetic, miserable life that this is where you get your <laughs> dopamine hit from bullying kids. What's a sad little life, like Jane? Man. Exactly, exactly. Uh, li- literally, take my money because I'm paying to be shouted at. Literally, it's weird. Like, uh, one final point because we only got like five minutes left. I just wanted to touch upon was my experience at university. Oh yeah. So, um, I for my undergrad went to um, Leeds, studied music, which is straight music, like not like music production, music. Um, any other stuff it was just like music music Mm. basically and i remember i never really like sort of like i was a bit like you like i never really was like that much of a social person i never really got involved with the music scene just Mm. because i was a bit like don't really like relate that much to these people if i'm being honest yeah yeah but it wasn't until my final year um i went to an um one of the events which you probably heard of him why is my curriculum white Yeah, yeah um and which obviously i think um Mel's who's a past um oh, Leeds yeah. student they started well they don't know if they started that but they did a lot during their time at Leeds with that and in my final year it was a girl called Manisha and she's um from um Guyana I think like she's like that's where her ethnic heritage is so she's 
obviously comes from a mix of black, Indian, mm. etc., mm-hmm. um, Indo-Caribbean background. And she was doing this um, talk, which was on decolonizing the curriculum, mm-hmm. which for those of you that don't know, is arguing that university curriculum is rooted in whiteness and it basically only in pretty much only includes white um academics yep. it's studied from a white perspective etc and she did this talk on it in relation to geography because that's what her um degree was yeah. and i remember sitting there and just thinking like about that in relation to music and i was literally like they never do i remember all the points she was making i was like they've never done anything like this in music and i i, I was actually um one of like the reps for my family year because it was a job that i um, did so i um signed up for this so i was actually one of those like rep things which i basically organized employment events for our final year and i remember being like i need to use my like platform in order to like try and like solve Mm -hmm. this so i looked into it and i found that university aims to be um at a 75 percent like maximum white intake for each degree which obviously correlates with yeah. um, the, the general population. Yeah. Like that's like they they don't want it to necessarily be higher than that because otherwise it's not really diverse. Okay. So that was also like a benchmark. Music actually failed to meet that. They had eighty five percent white intake yeah. and fifteen percent beat BAME. And I think there are, there are plenty of reasons. And we're running out of time here, so I can't really like, properly go into um, reasons why that might be. But I did raise it and. I was like, we need at least like have like a BAME rep or something, someone that actually mm-hmm. doesn't speak for people because it's hard like navigating your way through uh, subjects and um, academics like where you already you already feel like you don't fit in, and then within the actual academics itself, like uh, I it's don't know, it's very alienating. It is very alienating. Accommodated for yeah, and they said they were going to set up the BAME rep. That's like two, three years ago now. I don't know if they actually did. Like. I don't know. But yeah, we're coming to the end of the show now. Um thanks a lot for tuning in, everyone that has done. Um just to plug our socials again, um Mango Masala Radio or Mango Masala MCR, depending on what socials you're finding us on. Um put all these um shows on Spotify so you can go and listen to them back if you want. Um also clips on YouTube, Instagram, um, Twitter, Facebook, everything. So yeah go give us a follow and like and comment subscribe (laughs) thanks for tuning in guys see you next week thanks a lot